Hi, you're listening to an older episode. The podcast is now called Travel Writing World. You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to All Over the Place, a podcast on travel, culture, and the creative life. This episode takes us to Madrid, where I speak with Kat Ga about the virtues and pitfalls living as an expat in Spain, her participation in the North American Language and Culture Assistance Program, and her popular blog, Sunshine and Siestas. Without further ado, enjoy the conversation with Kat Ga. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So can you um, just give us a sense of uh, who you are, where you are, and what it is that you do? Of course. So as Jeremy mentioned, my name is Kat. I am a Chicagoan bred, but not born. Um, and I am currently living in Madrid, Spain. I graduated from university in 2007, and that was ever after having studied abroad. And I studied abroad in the most obscure place that no one ever goes to study abroad at. But that experience that I had over the summer in Valladolid, living with a Spanish family, going to a Spanish university, not really having a lot of contact with English. And of course, this was in an age before smartphones. Skype wasn't even a big thing, so I had to call my parents uh, with a phone card every Sunday. Mm -hmm. Make sure that we, you know, having the seven-hour time difference between Spain and Chicago, saying, all right, I'm going to call you right at noon. You have to be home and you have to be next to the phone. Um, I really immersed myself in Spanish culture and in the Spanish language and proudly marched off of the plane at O'Hare Airport after (laughs) two months abroad between my studies and some travel that I did around Spain and announced to my mother that I was moving back abroad. Okay, so that... I had to finish my university. Sorry? Sorry, so so you studied abroad in uh, 2005? Yes. I was studying journalism and international studies. I'd done my two years, and the reason I decided to go abroad in the summer was because um, I was paying for it entirely on my own, but I wanted to have the experience of living in a different culture and learning another language, and it was a great way for me to take care of some of my credits as well, Mm. and it was cheaper than going to an out-of-state university, even though I was at a state university with uh, good funding and good scholarships, Uh, but I got a really great opportunity to study through my university at the University of Valladolid and got a, a fantastic scholarship. So I was essentially just paying for my flights over from Chicago, whatever it was that I wanted to do as far as going up for Sapa, traveling on the weekends, um, and then the travel that I did after the program ended. I went back to the University of Iowa, my alma mater, and finished both of my degrees. And in that time, I, again, was really keen on moving abroad. So I spoke to the, our Office for Study Abroad group of really supportive people. And I do have to give the University of Iowa a lot of credit for, you know, being out kind of in the middle of nowhere, but still being quite international and globally minded. And one of the peer advisors said, listen, I found out about this really great program where you can teach English, you get a student visa, and you're in Spain for eight months. So I applied to that program. It's it's known as the Auxiliar program to people who are, you know, who are choosing this program. But essentially it's, the North American Language Assistance Program, mm-hmm. and it allows North American degree holders, as long as they're native, um, 
their native language is English to teach in Spanish public high schools, elementary schools, and language schools. So you might be working with little kids, you might be working with adults, um, but this program it was a really great stepping stone. And you did that just to get for, into some of the pro- Sorry, you did that for about three years. I did that for three years. I was really gunning for Granada. That was where I hoped to study abroad, but with um, finding a program that I could do in the summer that was affordable and then got me the credits that I was actually studying was going to be so difficult that I decided to go a different route. So in choosing where I wanted to teach abroad, I chose Granada and I was placed in Sevilla, which is about three hours west. Mm, It's the capital of the autonomous, yeah, the southern spin. I wanted to get as far away as I could from the winter. Mm. Being from Chicago and thinking, well, maybe I'll live abroad for a year or two. I wanted to go as far south as I could. And Sevilla is a really great city. And I was only 10 miles west so I could get to my summit really easily. And I ended up living in Seville for nine years. Very nice. And that's where we initially met. And we'll get to that story in a minute. And I'd like to kind of, uh, circle back at some point and talk a little bit more about um, how it is people can go to um, Spain and teach English in, in a minute. But uh, continue with uh, your, your story. So you're, you're in Madrid now. How did that transition from Seville to, to Madrid happen? Or what happened in the nine years that you're in Seville? A lot has happened. Um, initially, my idea was to stay in Spain for a year or two. And then because I had turned down a really interesting job opportunity, I thought, well, if I've got the language skills and I have the interest in storytelling and journalism, I have a journalism degree, that's going to have a great effect on what I can work in later. As it turned out, teaching was something that I did well and that I enjoyed. So once the language assistant program kindly kicked me out, um, I was kind of scrambling for something else to do, and I was considering going back to school to to be a teacher or to uh, study Spanish. I had a great offer from a university here in Madrid to do a master's program, but ultimately decided to take a job offer. I worked at a private school teaching little kids English, a lot of singing, a lot of screeching, a lot of <laughs> trying to get kids not to put things in their mouths or bite one another. <laughs> uh, but it was a really great experience because I did have the full classroom management experience. I had my foot in the door in a very well-connected school, and I did that for two years. The reason that I wanted to leave that particular job was because it was not the best work environment, and I was deciding or maybe realizing that a lot of my interests and my, we're saying Spanish destrezas, so the things that you do well, were more in the communications realm. Mm -hmm. So I was interested in going back to school to do a master's in something Similar to PR to strategic communication because I thought that that would get me like putting the door elsewhere, and I wasn't wrong. But I'll get to that. Uh, in order to be able to take this master's um, spot, I was offered at a university. It was an online program, a private university out of Barcelona. I had to free up a lot of my time, so I stepped away from the job at the elementary school. Uh, at that time, I was teaching first grade, and I had made the decision that I was going to move on to something else anyway. And I began working in a language school. So I was teaching kids after school, which meant that they would have an hour-long class a week or maybe an hour and a half, teaching a lot of these big um, Cambridge exams that are essentially the TOEFL or the IELTS, but for younger students, non-academic. And that job evolved very quickly that I became the director of studies. Uh, I had an offer after six months, but because I was finishing my master's and really keen on learning as much as I could. Um, I put that off until the following school year and stayed there for three years. 
I was kind of starting to get the itch that I liked teaching at the academy. It was a really comfortable job. Um, it was great because I had my mornings free, not just to do the masters, but then to blog. Um, I had a, a pretty big blog for a long time, doing some consulting work on the side, freelancing. I mean, something as simple as being able to enjoy going to the market in the morning to buy my produce or you know, taking a walk around the city center when the weather was nice and it was daytime. Uh, I think afforded me a lot of opportunity to be able to share Spain's stories. But apart from that, um, I started looking for other opportunities. But I was also looking in Madrid. Seville is a really wonderful city, but it didn't have enough for me. At, at that juncture in my life, I was kind of coming up on 30 years. I was about to get married because mm. uh, I'm a Spanish man. And was looking at other opportunities where I could grow in a different sort of career. So because of his job, he knew that he had a transfer that was eminent. And shortly after I began interviewing, I found out that I was pregnant. The thing was, was I had two job offers on the table, so I had to kind of not just consider a big move and a big life change, but also how I was going to let my former job know that I was leaving and the job offer that I was really interested in that I'd be leaving a few months later for maternity leave. So in my current position, Jeremy, I worked for, I worked for the university. I work for St. Louis University, which is an American university in Madrid. It's connected to St. Louis University in Missouri, mm -hmm. but we are recognized by the Spanish government, and that allows us to do what we do, of course, but also to offer degrees. We are a freestanding campus, so my admissions office obviously has a relationship with the Office of Admissions in St. Louis, but we you know, have our own admission standards, our own process. I think it's really cool that I, I get the opportunity to work on a lot of different projects. So even in my day-to-day, -day, obviously, I'm the admissions counselor for students who apply from my geographic areas, which are Western Europe and the UK, Sub-Saharan Africa. I do our two graduate programs. In addition to I'm now launching a new master's program for next year, so really being hands-on with getting the word out and finding the right students. But I also do all of our communication. Uh, so any... You know, from the time that you're in the inquiry stage and wanting to know a little bit more about the university to the time that you're applying for a visa, all of that communication that comes from our office has been written by me and usually plugged into the correct template. So essentially, the degree program that I did six years ago, I, you know, I finished in 2013, is now serving me really well because I get <laughs> to plan communication um, communication schemes. I get to work on a lot of cool projects, work with a lot of departments, which is great because the, the university is so international, but I'm still holding on to education, which is um, a sector that I really enjoy working in too. And without my time teaching abroad, I don't think I'd be very good at, at the job that I do. Yeah, that's good. It seems like you have both feet on both sides of the, the, the door there. Um, so Most definitely. Do you still do um, the consulting work with Haley? I do. I do. Um, Como Consulting is a relocation bureau. It's essentially a boutique agency where we take on non-European clients who are interested in either moving to Spain or who are already living here and want to continue living here. And we do a lot of work helping students um, you know, look for options here or we work with retirees who want to live out their, their golden years here. So as far as visas and work permits, or, you know, setting people up with lawyers for taxation purposes or for agency, um, you know, like a housing agency. We do a lot of that, but it is a mentioned boutique. Mm -hmm. And we take on a small number of clients because we, we really strive for perfection. We've got a great record and 
And I think that's because we take good care of of the people who we work with. So and you, it's, you said you know, it's it kind was... of taking all of the knowledge. Yeah, taking all of the knowledge from these 11 years and counting that I've lived here and the experiences that I've had with Spanish bureaucracy from, you know, even just starting with the visa process or knowing how to get over here legally to to doing some of the more, I wouldn't say complicated tests, but, you know, getting married, getting a university degree validated here, getting a driver's license, things that don't come as easily and perhaps aren't as straightforward as they are in our home country. Right. So you said non-European, so target audience there, Americans, I take it, mostly. Yeah, we work with a lot of North Americans, okay. especially Americans, and we work with a lot of Filipinos. But we get questions from all over the place, and, and we do help, for example, uh, we've got some clients who we're finishing up with who have moved to Spain, both Americans, but one had a British passport, so it was a matter of um, getting her, her foreign ID and, um, registered, then having her husband come over and getting them set up with not just an EU passport holder, but also the non-EU spouse. I see. I see. It sounds like there's a lot of uh, bureaucratic things to deal with uh, on on that end. Most definitely. And that seems to be. I remember my experience as an auxiliar and Seville. That you know that was often the complaint um, that we had you know, the difficulties of navigating you know the Spanish uh, bureaucracy. Um, but you know I, there, there were quite a few other difficulties that many um, auxiliars or expats or you know immigrants uh, faced. You know the kind of the social integration issues that we all struggle with uh, early on. Did you ever uh, encounter any of those difficulties socially when you first moved to Spain? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. I came to Spain kind of knowing the person who had told me about the program. Uh, she was also based out of Sevilla and worked in a, a small town nearby. This woman happened to live in an apartment building with a lot of people who were in the same situation, lots of Europeans, and she kind of fell into a friend group very easily. Whereas for me, before people started connecting on social media, uh, I mean, this was in the infancy of Facebook when I came over here and Twitter was kind of big, but not really. Um, I really struggled the first few months because I lived with a Spanish girl, her own friends, and a German girl who was not interested in socializing very much. She was very homesick, and it was difficult for me to meet people. I've always been an outgoing person. I've never had a problem making friends, and for whatever reason, it was it was difficult for me when I first came over, and some of it had to do with the language. I was really keen on having non-American friends, but, mm. you know, and, and I do think that there's a place to have friends from your, you know, either your culture or language or something similar to kind of, you know, talk about the mundane life, but it wasn't until I took a chance and somebody who I'd met um, online said, hey, I'm having a Halloween party. You should come. I had nothing to do. Really wasn't interested in going. And I went and ended up meeting a lot of people there, many of whom I'm still friends with. And I met the woman who introduced me to my husband. So, oh. you know, it, I think the key to making friends abroad is putting yourself out there. And right. I always liken it to people, especially the students who I work with, who are young and they're kind of in that transitional phase, is that it is like college. No matter what time of your life you move abroad, you kind of have to leave the proverbial door of your dorm room open and kind of see what comes along. And I think it is great now that people connect beforehand on LinkedIn or they're finding expat groups on Facebook or on Meetup. Um, even in Seville, the number of permanent American residents has grown so drastically in the last few years that, you know, I'm meeting more and more people who have decided to stay or who are interested in coming. 
and maybe they don't have much of a connection to Spain apart from having come here for a vacation. But people who are, are interested in sharing with other people, and, and it goes a lot further, I think, than having the common culture and the common language, wanting to be able to share things like Thanksgiving or, you know, hey, I'd really like to make chocolate chip cookies and I don't know where to find vanilla extract. Um, it's kind of having a home base for when, I don't know, I always say that the valleys are really low, but the mountains are really high when you live abroad. Because right. those emotions are so much more impactful than if you're, you know, back home where you've always lived and you can kind of say, okay, well, I'm having a bad day. I'm going to go to Dairy Queen and have a blizzard and that's the end of it. Or you can't get a decent milkshake in Spain. So, you know, you find other ways to cope. For me, it was a frappuccino. I was paying five euros for a frappuccino. Go to Corte Inglés and, and find what you can. Exactly. Well, now there's a Costco in Seville and there's wow. one in Madrid. So wow. I have my all beef hot dogs when I need them. <laughs> So did you did you um did you know Spanish when you first traveled to or studied abroad in in Spain or did you learn that and pick that up while you were there? So I thought I knew Spanish when I came to Spain, hmm. and for the most part, I did. I could get around. Um, I tested into the highest level in a at the university program offering. Um, unfortunately, the, it was four Americans. And we didn't have any Spaniards in, in my class, but, you know, I think that I made a big effort to learn from my host family. I lived with a younger woman. She was in her early 40s at that time, and I still go and see her. Now she's only a few hours away from Madrid. I was there in early September visiting with her and her family, and that kind of set me on a course to not only want to know Spanish for practical purposes, but really kind of delve into the different parts of, of the Spanish linguistic heritage and that's something that's really great I think about living in Spain is that it's so different between regions and I use Spanish in my job of course I use Spanish at home because my husband is Spanish I have to use Spanish when I go to the supermarket or down to the bar to have a beer you know so when I moved to Spain I knew the basics and now and a lot of my coworkers, none of whom are from the south originally laugh at me because I use a lot of uh, expressions from the south that said, it is really difficult, I think, when you learn textbook Spanish to come to a country where, you know, I never used the vosotros form, which is a third person informal plural, until I studied abroad. Right. So it was just a matter of me saying, okay, I have to remember if I'm talking to a group of people who aren't elderly, I, can, I just have to add ice at the end of every <laughs> conjugation. And that was kind of how it started. And maybe when I eventually took the daily exam, I took the C1 exam in 2011 already. And, you know, in studying, I said, well, I know that this is the way it is because this is what I hear in the street, but I don't know the mechanics behind it. I don't know what all of these rules are. And, and that to me was interesting because I was teaching languages at the time and I was, you know, trying to teach students patterns and how to put things together. And it was kind of futile. So, did I know Spanish? Yes. Did I speak Spanish? Kind of. Have I learned Spanish? Without a doubt. Right. Without and a doubt. It's a necessity breeds whatever invention or whatever it is. And, and that was certainly the case with me in Spanish. Right. And, and, and I'm assuming the host family kind of awakened the Spanish that you, you had studied already. Yep. And it seems like, you know, for students that are studying abroad um, or even auxiliars who are going abroad, you know, the one of the, the biggest kind of social faux pas is to get too closely attached to American friends. And in some ways that might yes. kind of impede linguistic growth 
but also impede a connection with the host culture, in this case, Spain, uh, by relying too much on the the American students or the American travelers or expats or whatever. Um, so it's a, it's a delicate balance. You need that social network to to complain, right? <laughs> to, to commiserate together and to comp- complain about all the the things that you need to complain about. But at the same time, uh, you don't want to kind of rely so much on that because you'll know you know you're missing out on on so much. Yeah, and I think it's also a matter of when I decided that I wanted to stay in Spain longer than my allotted years in the language assistant program. I said I really need to invest in making friends, not only with locals, because this is, of course, at the height of the financial crisis, and a lot of people were moving away from the smaller cities and and most definitely the towns. But I said, you know, I want to eventually raise a family here, and I want to have friends who are going through the same thing. And and I still feel like I'm lacking that. I have uh, a son who's nearly two years old, but I wanted to invest my time and my energy in people who I knew would stay around. And maybe I missed out on some really great friendships. And, you know, there are people who have come and gone who I have stayed in touch with and who I talk to often. I have a friend who I talk to every day, and she moved away, I think, five years ago, but you wouldn't know it. And there are others who we talk every once in a while or you comment about something on their social media. But in the end, it's, you know, I, I had to be a little bit selective with where I was spending my time. And, and that made me, I think force myself to make friends with more Spaniards as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm speaking of, of, of friendships. I, I was trying to think about uh, Cap- when it was that we first met, and I can't recall the, the genesis <laughs> of, of, of the friendship. <laughs> um, do you have any recollection as to when we, we first met precisely? I want to say it was through a mutual friend. That's what I want to say as well, but I can't <laughs> recall which what? friend. Maybe Monica? Okay, maybe it was Monica, <laughs> but I don't know how I met Monica. Oh, I do. Okay, yeah, it was through Monica. So so Monica was working with some other group, and the director contacted my school. I was working at, a, at an institute in Triana, and um, I forget the lady's name, but she was working for uh, this lady who was doing a consulting thing for English speakers, and she was contacting the school about getting an intern so or something or another. And I met Monica through that situation. I think then you and I met through Monica. Okay. But it, that's the funny thing about, about, I guess that's bad. Everybody knows somebody knows somebody. Right. And I oftentimes, you know, I find that or I had a friend message me the other day and said, Oh, I met one of your friends. Couldn't recall her name, where she was from, nothing about her. And I said, well, you're not helping me at all. because <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's like when you've lived somewhere long enough, you meet lots of different people. And especially those of us who, I've kind of stayed, but I think when we met, I I think I was also a language assistant. I was in my third year because that's when I met Monica. Mm, it was and, 2010 when we met. Yeah, so I was still a language assistant at that point. So very much in the same you know mind frame that hey, we're just here, we're having fun. We have this really cool and cushy gig. We get paid a little bit of money. We live in mm-hmm. Spain, and let's go <laughs> and do something fun. Let's go drink a lot of wine. Yeah, <laughs> let's go drink a lot of wine. Let's be out. Yeah until all hours in the morning and then roll up to school. <laughs> and, you know, and I sometimes get nostalgic for those days when, right. well, I, I guess I don't get nostalgic for trying to make 700 euros a month work, but. The liberty and you know, the fun. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. The liberty, you know, you don't have to show up for work at eight o'clock in the morning. I'm actually responsible for people. <laughs> now, even, even though, um, even though you and I actually, we know each other, 
um, you know, you do have this sort of, um, I guess, reach or this sort of friendship with many, many people that you've been cultivating through your blog, uh, Sunshines and mm-hmm. Siestas, right? So, I mean, I think um, this, I don't know if I told you this story, but now I lead students abroad every year and um, we were mm-hmm. working with a tour provider and the salesperson that we were dealing with, um, she was helping us plan our trip and we told her we wanted to go through Seville and she had studied in Seville and she actually uh, relied a lot on your your website to help her kind of navigate the, the entire process and the social uh, situations in, in Seville. And I said, oh... <laughs> You know Kat, you know Kat too. And she's like, well, no, 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 no. I know her through her blog and I call her my guardian angel because she helped me out and X, Y, and Z. But I mean, I mean, I think your, your, your reach and your impact is, is, is real. Um, and it's really helpful for a lot of uh, young expats or travelers who are trying to, to go to Spain. Um, so how, how long have you had that blog? I started Sunshine and Siestas, and by the way, thank you for the for the compliment because mm. you know with a toddler and a full time job where I do a lot of com work, it's sometimes hard to say. I have people who like reading my blog, and I enjoy writing, and this is something. This is a project that I've had for so long that it would be it would be silly and it would be sad for me to just kind of say, all right, well, I'll just let it live out its days and its domain name until <laughs> you know I decide not to do my my domain mapping. But um, I started Sunshine and Siestas right before I moved abroad. So at that point in time, it was called Olivares Bound, and it was kind of a, I don't know what to call this blog. I'm not thinking about being a blogger. I just want to have a place where I can write because it's cathartic for me, and this was before social media, so I had nothing to do in the afternoons after I got done with working. Mm-hmm. And eventually, I moved from Blogspot to WordPress, WordPress to self-hosting. One blog became another, became a bunch of freelance work. Um, but Sunshine and Siesta for me was kind of like a virtual, and still is, um, a virtual love letter to Andalusia. And, you know, sometimes I think, well, now I live in Madrid, but I don't write that much about Madrid. I write about expat life, and I think expat life issues in many ways are the same no matter where you go. And, and some of it is practical. It's how to get a residency card or what to do, you know, if you want to go on a tapas crawl in Seville, but other post. My latest post was a little bit more personal about how it was that I came to move abroad and kind of circling back after so many years of reading a book about another expat's um, life in Paris and deciding I wanted that life. And it's really afforded me not just opportunities because it was mentioned in my interview at St. Louis University. It was mentioned when I did an interview at the the U.S. uh, embassy here in Madrid. So people know about it. Even you know, it's a niche blog. I'm not a huge blogger. I don't have millions of followers. I mean, I don't even have two thousand people who follow me on on my Facebook page. But um, you know, it's allowed me to share the love that I have for this place that I've called home for so many years. For me, Seville is still home, even though we live in Madrid. And it's also allowed me to connect with a lot of people. I've met a number of people from my blog who say, "Hey, I don't. I'm sure you have a million friends, and maybe you don't want to meet, but." You know, I've, I've tried to find time to meet people who read my blog, to say thank you, to have a beer with them, to say, here's one of my favorite places. You can come back here the rest of the week, and they're going to take really good care of you. Whatever you want to eat, whatever dietary restrictions, however much you want to drink. So, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's I think that Sunshine and Siestas is a really big part of my story. And even though professionally I'm not necessarily making much of a benefit from it, um, what it's brought me on other levels has been really important and really 
Right, right. And so, yeah, and I think this is one of the the uh, important misconceptions uh, that many people have about bloggers is they kind of envision, you know, this monetized living, this digital nomad who's kind of cashing in right through all the content mm-hmm. that they're creating. But it's not always like that, right? And there, there are some real yeah. growing uh, issues um, when you're writing a blog, when you're first starting out. Um, and even sure. when you're kind of advanced, uh, like yourself, people often think that the blog life is is, is one that has an allure of, of freedom and, and income. And that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. But it does reach and, and have an impact. And I think you know, if if you don't do it for money, which you shouldn't, because you won't make any money off of it. At least you're doing exactly. it to help people, right? And uh, well, that's what it's all about. Exactly. No, I think, and I kind of have a love hate relationship with the blogging industry. And I think a lot of people, and even those who make this their full time job, kind of feel the same that you know, like image is a big deal, and having a pretty site, and you know, sometimes I personally hate writing for SEO. I think it's really impersonal and it's just repeating the same keywords over and over and over again. I said, well, that's what makes people successful. Whereas I, I got a really great compliment from Karen McCann, who is an expat writer who's also based in Seville. And she said, when I started reading your blog, it was like having a conversation with you. And, and for me, that was really all I needed to hear because at the end of the day, I'm kind of writing for myself and my small group of followers. And, you know, I have my little corner of the internet and that's why I don't really care what other people think about it. And, And sometimes I think, well, maybe I should, I should take my photos or go back and add some more keywords or oops, <laughs> I, you know, the spacing's off or I have a typo there, but I'll get there eventually. That was my plan before I had a baby and still hasn't happened two years later. But, you know, I, I think that the, the core, the heart of the blog isn't about, you know, writing to be on the first page of Google. Right, right. So what what is um what what's the fate of sunshine and siestas? Are you going to continue doing that, but to to write more generally about kind of expat issues or immigration, those types of things in conjunction, or kind of to align it more closely with what you're doing in in with your consulting work? That's a really great question, um, and I think that as my son is getting older and older, I'm trying to carve out some more time to to work on some of these creative ventures that I put a lot of time and effort and of course some money into. Um, mostly what we're doing with Como is working with people one-on-one, you know, kind of providing some before and on the ground consulting. And a lot of times it's just reassurance that they're doing everything correctly. And, and I think it says a lot that Haley and I have been through so many of those, mm. those worries and those issues and those frustrations. Um, a lot of what Sunshine and Siestas is is more based on Spain culture, Spain travel, and there is some of that on on the Como website. But there's a little bit less of our voice, I think, and it's kind of more of a how-to. So my plan is to keep writing. I keep renewing, you know, my domain name, and <laughs> I've got I think 24 drafts. Um, I was able to sneak in about an hour's worth of time yesterday on a post I'm writing about Trujillo, mm. which is a really fantastic medieval town that not a lot of people know about, about two and a half hours south of Madrid and hope to have that published uh, within the next two weeks. And it's really, you know, working on digital, digital resources, I think both for expats and for people who are just traveling to Spain and maybe nobody reads it, but it's out there. I've done it. I enjoy it. Mm. You know, I, I do get a dozen emails a week and not just, Hey, we want to advertise on your blog, but I want to move to Spain. I write your story. 
And some of it is asking for advice and others are just saying, thanks for writing this. It's really interesting to hear. Yeah, that's gratifying to, to, to get. So, Most definitely. Yeah. So, so you're, you're alluding to some of the time issues that you have. Um, and I assume the, uh, motherhood has a, a big uh, yep. role in that and those issues. How is it that you're balancing your kind of creative life with, with your child? Well, that's a really fantastic question. Day to day. I think that, yeah, it's, it's really a day to day thing. I, I do a lot of my big project work on the weekends or once he's asleep. So I am prescribing to the very American bedtime of 830 at night. Mm. And he'll usually go down and that at least gives me some time to I'm not in front of the computer because a lot of times after a full day of work and sitting at a screen and you know, coming up with creative copy and running a digital campaign, I don't have the energy for it. Um, so a, a lot of that work falls on the weekends or maybe in the afternoons I want to head to the gym instead. So, you know, I, yeah. I do what I can when I can, but I also don't force myself to publish. Um, and, and plowing through the book, Trust Me Online, that's about um, a PR guru who kind of lies his way up the chain and is able to manipulate the news media. And I, in today's day and age, it's a really good read to kind of understand, you know, so someone who predicted that fake news was going to be a thing because he kind of, I wouldn't say he started it, but he definitely had a hand in it. And, you know, just to hear, I forgot where I was going this, um, Oh, did he was mentioning that people who work for the Huff Post, for example, just to throw out a name, have to write five articles a day. So they don't have time to, to really invest in how they're crafting their article or the right quote and the right uh, sources. With me, you know, I use Wikipedia. I'm not going to lie, but, you know, I'm not a trusted news source, let's say, if I'm right, writing right. about what year Trujillo was founded and who it was founded by. So I try not to pressure myself. Um, I try not to take on more than I can chew as far as uh, freelance work. It's really got to do with time. Um, I would rather take on something como written and do some consulting work because I really enjoy that um, rather than writing on my blog. And it really just comes down to a matter of time. I used to publish three times a week on Sunshine and CSS. So wow. definitely cut down. If I can post once a month, it's usually good. <laughs> so we, we keep on talking about... Um you as an expat and, you know, expats this and expats that. And, you know, I was reading an article the other day and it was, it was pedantic. It was an academic article on, on expats. And the author made a comment that, you know, most of the academics think or classify or define expats as those who are living abroad on a temporary basis. So uh, I guess the question that I'm going with is, when is it that you're going to, I guess, acknowledge that you are an immigrant now? Like, are you ever going to get to there or or do you still consider yourself as an expat as as a temporary thing i mean you have a husband you have a child you have you know deep roots now a mortgage yeah, deep roots. <laughs> yeah it's, it's a really great question jeremy because i think there's a lot of misconception around the word expat that it's a pretty little word and it's for people who are privileged enough to do it and i mean that's just the fact that i'm privileged to do what i do and to have made a life here and to even have it has been something possible as an American, you know, kind of someone who had the right passport and I guess the gun is and the gumption to do it. But for me, making Spain long-term really mm. was a year-by-year -year decision until I decided to buy a house in 2014. Mm. And this 
it's going to sound terrible. I don't feel like an immigrant, even though, and, and maybe it's just because I don't have a Spanish passport. I haven't taken those steps yet. And, you know, if I effectively have everything that I own here. I never owned a car in America, but I own one here. Um, you know, I own a house here. became a first-time homeowner. Mm. The idea isn't to move back to the U.S., but I won't say it won't ever happen. Mm. And I probably should start calling myself an immigrant. And especially in the climate today that I hear people put down immigrants in our country. Right. I say, well, but that's two, and that's you as somebody yeah. who, you know, lives abroad. Right, right. Right. Uh, expats, um, according to this uh, article, are, are people who um, live temporarily abroad um, because they work for a kind of a, a, a giant, you know, multinational corporation. So sure. there is that kind of sensation that these expats are relatively well connected and um, well paid and um, are just passing through. But it seems to me that you know, your experience is quite different. And I haven't met Haley. Um, I don't recall ever meeting her, but it seems to me that, you know, she and some of your other friends that you've met are kind of in similar situations, right? And putting mm-hmm. down deep roots as opposed to, you know, this transitory parenthesis, right? Here we're teaching in Spain. That one time that I, I lived in Spain and now I'm going to go back and to my home country. You're, you're, you're doing something that's something more, it is a big decision to make because, I mean, you know, people talk a lot about sacrifice and, oh, the salaries are lower. But I think that what it, what I've gotten out of living in Spain has been so much more than I might have if I were living in the U.S. And it's a lot more than salary. Obviously, I'd like to get paid more money for what I do or I'd like to not have a big mortgage hanging over my head or to have more retirement savings. But, you know, the quality of life that I have here and the life that I've built for my son, I think far outweighs what I might do in the U S and there comes a point, no matter how long you've been here, if it's, you know, eight months of a teaching program, you think, should I do this another year? Should I go back? Should I get a graduate degree? Should I start a job? You know, someone waiting on me at home or my parents expected me to be back. And my parents were like, well, you're an adult. You can make your own decision. Obviously, we want you to come home, but you've got to make that decision. And I have friends who have been abroad now for 11 or 12 years who have said, now I feel that pull. Mm. After this many countries and this many cities and this many jobs, now's the time for me to go back home because I want to have a family and I want to be close to mine. Um, you know, I met my husband shortly after moving to Seville and we've grown together as adults. And I don't know that he would be as happy in the U.S. as I am here. But, you know, I have a lot of other friends who have said, okay, well, this is what it is. Like Haley, for example, said, I really want to become a Spanish citizen because this is my home now. So she has a Spanish passport. Uh, I, in my group of American friends, there are eight of us. And uh, one has applied to be a Spanish citizen. Half of us are married. And the others say, well, I've got this really great job here. And this is home for me. Hmm. But, there's, you know, and I think there's this idea that you have to make it work and that you can't say, all right, well, I gave it a good go and it's not for me or I want something different or I want to try a new place. You know, because I know people who've lived in, in Seville and Seville made like a utopia with everything but the jobs. Um, and I said, well, I think that to really love Seville and love the life that I had there, I have to go somewhere else and experience something different. You know, and my friend who's, who moved to Jakarta two years ago said, there's no way I'm moving back to America. Wow. She's been there for two years. She's got the option to come back to Spain, but she said, but that's not what I want either. So, you know, it's it's different for everyone. And she's the one who pointed out to me, I've had so many roadblocks between the visa, between ex-boyfriends, between just issues with Spain in general. 
but I might have run into oh, there isn't a reason for me to leave. And if, when I want to leave, it's going to be on my terms, and I can't feel bad that maybe it didn't work out the way that I wanted to. Right. You asked her her five years, and when we both to she would have said, "Oh, I'm going to marry my Spanish boyfriend next year. We're going to have kids. I'm going to work in an international school." How, you know, how would you recommend that? someone moves to Spain? I mean, what steps would you recommend that somebody take? Um, maybe somebody fresh out of, of college, do you recommend that they go through the auxiliar program first to, to get a taste of it? Or, you know, how would you approach that question? I happen to have a fantastic experience in the language assistant program. There's a lot of, I think it's a lot easier to just complain about the negative stuff in groups or on blogs. Um, you know, and there are payment issues. Not everyone likes teaching. Not everyone likes kids, and that's okay. Um, but I've also found that there's a lot of privilege around the whole, well, I'm an American. Why do I have to get a visa? Why can't I just go abroad and get a job? And there are a lot of different ways to live in Spain legally, but I think that the auxiliary program is a really great stepping stone because you do have a legal visa. You're earning time towards residency. After three years, there are a lot of different ways that you can modify your we call it a visa scheme so that you're able to stay here legally, whether or not you want to start a business. Um, you know, a lot of people do the, what's called a pareja de hecho, which is essentially a civil union. That's what I did to be able to extend my visa and, and be able to work. So there's a lot more as far as options than there were 10 years ago and even five or six years ago. But I think that the language assistant program is great because it does give you a lot of free time to explore their interests. Um, I, spent a lot of time blogging, but I also took long walks around the city. I took French class. I took flamenco. Uh, other people like to travel every weekend. Other people are doing a master's online. So it's a way, some people see it as a, a means to an end, and that end being living in Spain for a little while. Um, but for me, it was a career stepping stone. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that I would have gotten a job in a university without having an idea of the school system in Spain, knowing how to talk to young people and building a rapport uh, in my job I talked to parents as well so for me the auxiliar program was a really great way to kind of land in Spain learn some skills learn some Spanish meet people um, and I don't think I took advantage of my time as a language assistant as well as I could have but Why not? I said it's 2020 <laughs> um, I spent a lot of time teaching private classes I was more interested in making money than maybe making connections I see of course, like my blog, my blog has helped with that. But I had friends who were interning at study abroad companies or interning at marketing companies, um, traveling on the weekends. Or they they said, okay, well, being in this small town in Andalusia was great, but now I have to go to Madrid because I want to start making connections. Spain, when it comes down to it, is all about what they call enchufe. Enchufe is a word for plug, like something you plug a lamp into or your laptop. Um, but it's kind of the way that people get jobs. It's not good enough to be the only person qualified. You have to know somebody. And that's from anywhere far up in the government down to being the secretary at the language school down the street. So perhaps I could have done a little bit more or I might have you know, taken a coding class in my free time. But I was either watching Arrested Development or blogging <laughs> or teaching private classes. So so, um, so the language and culture, uh, prog- culture assistance program, it's basically a program that's put on by the Ministry of Education and Culture, I believe. And Mm -hmm. they, just for for the listeners, um, this is a program that um, the Spanish government essentially gives you a visa and 
Um, you're legally working for you're technically, I think you're on a student visa when you go, when you go abroad, but, um, you're on a student visa and you're being an assistant at a school of some sort in Spain, um, helping teachers teach their subjects in English or helping them teach English typically. And you work for about 12 to 15 hours a week. So it's very, not very time consuming. And this gives uh, people the opportunity to, to live in Spain, as you say, um, and kind of learn about the culture and, and enjoy their time there. I think it's open. That's exactly to, it. I think it's open to um, uh, people who have a bachelor's degree, but uh, the age restriction I think caps out at around sixty. So it's virtually open, virtually open to to everyone. Most definitely, there there are a number of language assistant programs, and the first one, kind of the granddaddy of them all, um, is the Ministry of Education, of course, because it is a free program. So you don't have to pay any application fee. You get the letter of invitation and health insurance information that you need to get a student visa. But from there, you get a a stipend and you get health insurance. There are other programs such as CIEE uh, where you pay, but you get a lot more on-the-ground help. You get, I don't want to say a better school placement, but you might be closer to a capital city or a large city. Whereas in the ministry program, you could be placed two hours from an airport which is kind of the risk that you run if you are outside a big metropolitan area. And then there are a number of other programs that have kind of sprouted up, like Usetan or Beda, which work with private schools rather than public schools. Um, there's one called Conversa. Some are kind of build-your-own-design because you can choose when you start, uh, whereas the ministry program is a little bit more rigid. But I think it's a, a fantastic to get people over here. And some people will do it for a year or two and then move on. Um, a lot of people after that experience might decide to get they're CELTA and they teach abroad, for example, in Asia where you get paid a lot more. Um, other people decide to go back to school afterwards. And when you consider that probably 2,500 people are doing this program a year, one of these programs, maybe more. There, no, there must be more. It's considerably more. There were like more. 700 just <laughs> Yeah. Yes. I mean, maybe I'm going to ballpark and say 5,000 people. This program started, I think, two years before I came. So that's a ton of people who have kind of passed through and, you know, and there's this whole, oh, I don't know how effective it is. And maybe students really aren't learning by it. There's contact with the culture. And I think a culture that was so closed off to the rest of the world for so long under the Franco regime or who's, you know, whose students' parents might not have ever left Spain. It's an interesting way for students to get to know other cultures and other people. And I have to really enjoy that I got, the chance to work with young people to teach them about Chicago and about American culture, of course, the language. And because I did non-linguistic areas, um, I was working with teachers who maybe said, I don't know how to put this concept that we're learning in music into English, or how can we make it interesting and allow students to practice when they should really be playing the recorder, but I have to have them speak in English too. So for me, it was a fun challenge and I learned a lot. I was fortunate to get a fantastic placement. I mean, I felt like another teacher. I didn't feel like the person in the corner who got called under redirections, where, which is kind of one of the downfalls of some of these programs that don't have a lot of overhead. So you're just kind of, okay, well, somebody is English speaking and they're going to go into the classroom and do what you will. Right. So, you know, that's, that's kind of the hard part that experience differs. 
I know people who have left after two months because they decided it wasn't for them or they were placed too far away from where they wanted to be. Um, I got a phone call from someone who I'd been talking to online and she said, I just got placed and I'm a teeny tiny town. It wasn't a teeny town. It was considerably much larger than most places, but she was really disappointed. I ended up loving it because she said, you know, I, I kind of took it at face value and said, oh, it's eight months. I'm going to live in Spanish. I'm going to live in Spain again. That was the ultimate goal. She lived in a city that had a huge Erasmus population, so lots of European students coming over to study abroad. She was by the beach. I mean, what she comes over here. She's a Spanish teacher now. And, sorry? What more could you ask for, right? <laughs> and I said, you know, I had friends who lived there my first year. And I was going to visit them all the time because I had great friends and it was cheaper to live there. And they really enjoyed their experience. It just wasn't like, oh, look, I'm living in Barcelona or Valencia and I'm right at the beach and it's so beautiful and big city, big airport. So, you know, that's, I think one of the, the things that upsets me the most when people complain about where they get placed. And I think, you know, how many people would love to do a program like this and have a year where they don't have to pay back student loans, maybe. Right. You know, they don't have that hanging over their head or they're not committed to working somewhere because they think that's what they have to do. They can kind of use this as a year to find out more about themselves, to travel. My mom was like, just consider this your super senior year and it's <laughs> 11 years later. <laughs> I mean, I've got responsibilities as a kid now, but, you know, I still, I still think that my life is more adventurous now than it might be if I were back home in Chicago like I had planned on. For sure. And, you know, being placed in a, in a small town, I think, comes with its uh, you know, very real benefits. You know, it's cheaper, of course. but also the, you know, the, the ability for for the, the traveler to, to immerse herself into the culture. I think, you know, that opportunity um, presents itself much more so in a small town than it does in a larger city yeah. like Seville or Madrid. So arguably the takeaway, and especially if the person has an open mind, the opportunities to to grow often are higher in smaller cities than they are in, in larger ones. Exactly. Exactly. I met a girl. This was one of those cases where she said, I've read your blog before. I can't believe I'm sitting next to you in an airport waiting for a plane. <laughs> and uh, she and I kept in touch and she was living in a tiny town that was about halfway in between Sevilla and Malaga. And I, we were both flying to the same city on two separate flights, two separate airlines. So we met up and, you know, kind of struck up a friendship. And this town must have had 2,500 people in it. And she's been back. She's from Canada, but she's been back to visit because she said, I met so many wonderful people living in this town, but we got so involved. She was with, um, you know, another North American. She said, we take cooking classes on Mondays. And then we, we give group language lessons on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And on, on Wednesday, we might go into the next biggest town because they have, like, you know, they have a couple of other language assistants and it's just a bus ride. So they were really, they were able to live, in my opinion, a very rich cultural experience that I might not have had that first year because I was just looking to have American friends and do American things and right. spend my hard earned euros on frappuccinos rather than, you know, going out and trying to make Spanish friends. So I wouldn't say that I was envious of her because Sevilla is a really fantastic place <laughs> to live, but... You know, I said, that's, you know, this is the kind of attitude I think you have to have moving abroad where you say, all right, well, maybe I wanted to be in a bigger city or closer to the airport or next to the beach, but I'm going to take this for what it is and see what happens. Right, right. Well, we're getting uh, kind of close to our time here, but I, I wanted to ask you uh, one, one final question. How, how has living abroad kind of changed you? 
So I've lived my adult life in Spain. And people a lot of times will ask me now, especially that I'm in my early 30s, will say, well, what is it like to live in America? What's this like? What's that like? And it's hard for me to say because I've, I kind of came over in the advent of social media and you know, things were maybe simpler in those days. But uh, I think that living abroad or kind of going outside your comfort zone, no matter where you are, because you might be from a small town, for example, my friends in small town Iowa who went to live in Minnesota. And I said, well, I'm a lot more resilient because I have to do a lot of things on my own. Um, you know, I, I think that I would have been comfort- comfortable if I moved back to Chicago or stayed in the United States and maybe I wouldn't have had the chance to travel as much and to try new things because I feel like moving abroad has emboldened me in a lot of my choices. And there's times when it's scary or it's frustrating. I called my mom on the way back home today and was like, oh, I'm just so frustrated. And some of it's really trivial, but, you know, I think that that, kind of big at why it's important for me to have American friends and have a, you know, support network. some sort of relationship with my culture or, yeah, and my language. But, but ultimately, I think that I'm living my best life. <laughs> you know, hashtag blessed. But, but really, it's fun and it's challenging to live abroad. And I think that that's why I've been so interested in making it work and kind of making Spain my home. Yeah. I don't know where, you know, is we'll be taken to next. Um, you know, we're interested in maybe moving abroad or moving somewhere else in Spain. And, and I got a, a great compliment from a very close friend of mine who I met in my early days in, in Sevilla, uh, when I announced on my blog two years ago that I was moving to Madrid and it was kind of a post that I was writing in those early days, you know, that knowing that we were going to move abroad. Letter? It happened so fast. Yeah. My breakup letter. And I'll <laughs> read it every once in a while when I'm feeling homesick for Sevilla. And, um, you know, someone was like, oh, I feel so bad for you. It feels so beautiful. Madrid, ugh, ugh. And my friend, very heroically, <laughs> said, cat can make a life anywhere. And, and, you know, not to do my own horn, but I think that because I've done it before and, mm-hmm. you know, I've got the tools to be able to do it again. And it's not something that, you know, we're shying away from. And my husband hasn't had that opportunity to live in a different culture or in a different language. And, and maybe that's why our next, our next big thing is, I don't know. Yeah. Well, maybe the next time we have a conversation, you'll, you'll be somewhere else. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. You never know. Yeah. Well, look, Kat, it's been um, really good to talk to you again. It's been a while and, you know, I appreciate the time that you cut out of your day to, to, to talk with us. And um, can you just let us know where we can find you online and I'll, I'll put everything in the show notes. Most definitely. Well, I will put in a small plug for St. Louis University, um, American University, fully accredited degrees in Madrid. So if you're thinking about studying abroad, interested in Spain, but language programs, maybe in English, uh, it's a really cool place, multicultural, um, lots of great programming for students, whether they're looking for the cultural or linguistic immersion or just to be in Europe. Um, so you can find me there. I, again, do do different things, um, but I'm happy to put you in touch or just answer your questions about studying abroad in Spain. You can also find me at my personal blog, which is sunshineandsiestas.com. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at sunshinesiestas as well if you want to see what expect like life is like on a day-to-day. And finally, if you're really keen on moving to Spain, comoconsultingspain.com. Como is in C-O-M-O which is also the word for how in Spanish. So it's kind of a how-to guide about how to move to Spain. 
Well, very good. Uh, thank you. And we'll put, uh, we'll be sure to put all those links in, in the show notes and, uh, follow your, uh, your, your, your beer adventures on Instagram. <laughs> Always. <laughs> well, very good. And next time? I'm sorry. Yeah, and next time we meet, we'll uh, have a beer and kind of relive the um, the, uh, uh, the glory day. <laughs> what I'm thinking about is carnival. <laughs> in, in <laughs> That's a story for later. <laughs> for <the> yeah? <laughs> right. Well, thanks again, Kat, and uh, we'll, we'll be in touch. Thanks for inviting me. Great to talk to you. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of All Over the Place. Please consider supporting the show if you find it valuable. You can do this by subscribing to the podcast in your favorite app, reviewing it, following me on social media, or by supporting the show directly via Patreon. Links can be found in the show notes and on alloverthepodcast.com. Thanks for your support and farewell. Farewell.